On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Close to the Edge. Welcome to Progressive Palaver. I'm Joe Beauclair, and as always, I'm joined on this episode by my very good friends, Ken Gregory and Paul Zotter, as we discuss the classic, yes, album, Close to the Edge. Just to fill our listeners in on a couple of things about this episode, this episode was actually recorded um, back in July of 2017, so several months before you're hearing it, and also several months before we recorded the special concert series episodes on Yes featuring ARW, in case you've listened to those. So this just gives you a little perspective on on when we actually had this conversation. And I feel obligated to apologize to our UK listeners for the Chris Squire impersonation. Um, the accent may be all wrong, but... Um, we uh, we here at the Palaver Field, there's a certain amount of value in the content. So we hope you enjoy this episode, and uh, we'll see you on the other side. All right, and... And Paul, sadly, you, well, maybe not sadly, I don't know. Um, I should have a, a recording of it, although it may be overwhelmed by Shine On You Crazy Diamond. Um, Ken did an outstanding Chris Squire impression before we dialed you in. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't even know what he sounds like for sure, but, but I just approximated something, so... <laughs> <laughs> Any old English accent will do. It's fine. It was more the content than the accent. I can do a second take. I can do a second take. But I, I'm, oh, I'm really oh, curious Steve, now. Steve, Steve, it's Chris. It's Chris. Steve, Steve. Okay, go on, tell you. Um, we, 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 we've been meaning to talk to you. Call it an intervention. John had an idea, and I just figured I'd follow through here, but... You, 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 you got the riff and it's in the, the low part and then the riffs it's in the medium part and you got the riffs is in the high parts and uh, all three of them all three of them you got this look like this crazy look and like we don't know it's you or something okay so <laughs> we know it's you all three of those instruments are you you're not fooling anybody, okay? So you just, 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 just put the sunglasses on and don't look at us like that, and just play the part like the album. Just turn around, just, just freaking us out, okay? You all right? Okay, let's, let's go to the pub. Thank you, thank you, Steve. Okay, bye bye. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> oh, dude, that is too much. So. So all of this is a, a beautiful preamble into 1972's Close to the Edge. Featuring um, John Anderson, Chris Squire, Steve Howe, Rick Wakeman, and Bill Bruford. So this would be the... I guess this is, a, what, the, the second 
album with this lineup, and it would be the last with this lineup for quite some time. Forever. And, um, again, it was released in 1972, um, September of 1972, by Atlantic, and produced by Eddie Offord and Yes. This is interesting. Um, Eddie Offord, obviously, becomes almost, not almost, he becomes an integral part of sort of the recording process through here, I think. And um, so according to the standard blurb, Close to the Edge is the fifth studio album by the English progressive rock band Yes, released on 13 September 1972 by Atlantic Records. Following a tour in support of their previous album, Fragile, Yes returned to AdVision Studios in London to record their next album, produced by the band and audio engineer Eddie Offord, the album consists of three tracks, Close to the Edge on side one, and You and I and Siberian Katru on side two. When recording for the album finished, drummer Bill Bruford, frustrated by the band's style and laborious recording in the studio, left to join King Crimson. So, a completely pointless aside here, I'm fascinated by how to spell Eddie Offord's name. When you look online, there's I-E and there's Y, and I just don't know what the right answer is. Um, I think it's accepted um, either either way. Hmm. I've seen I've seen it. Um, I've actually I've seen it in both. Um, I've seen it in both, but I I feel like it's more common E D D Y. See, I always thought it was E-D-D-I-E, but, you know, whatever. It's all good. I, 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 I don't know that it, it isn't. I, I just, I, that's what seems to come up more often when, uh, when, when, when search. I had the same problem with Iron Maiden. Iron. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Eddie. So, you know, but I... I I bring Eddie up simply because I don't know that I've ever seen Eddie Offord. Um, I know that I have read one or two quotes by him. But I, I also know that I've come across several, you know, accounts of, of the recording of, of Fragile and Close to the Edge and, you know, sort of the the mad scientist Frankenstein approach that was used. And, and Eddie seemed to be an integral part of that. And if in fact, these guys literally constructed a lot of these long form songs, literally physically by splicing tapes together and, yeah. you know, Oh, well here we like, you know, this part of this take and this part of this other take and, you know, we'll tape them together and, and all that, you know, I think he's certainly worth a mention here. Mm, um, mm, mm. Yeah, I don't know if you had a chance to, to read the interview that I posted on our Facebook page, Joe, with him from um, Note to the Edge. I, I'm afraid that I have not yet, Paul, but it's, oh, it's really... Uh, I had I had uh, I'd mentioned a couple of his quotes from uh, in one of our last episodes, and... Um, it's pretty insightful, albeit the interview was conducted in the early 2000s. So, you know, he's going on like 35 years of memory. Um, 
but it was pretty pretty interesting stuff about like what he said and and yeah i mean he he more or less described a situation where you know they were they were splicing the arrangement of the song together while they're in the studio and it would take hours to sometimes just do like 30 seconds of of a part of a song um and then after that was all done then they would splice it all together and then you know overdub parts and then you know poor john anderson you know had to come in at the end and try to sing over it but uh i i i think on close to the edge i think is there are some i don't know that they're obvious maybe that maybe it's just me thinking that they are but i i feel like on the actual song close to the edge you can hear the the splices um sometimes uh as well, they as they happen i mean how given the technology how could you not mm. yeah you know, I mean, yeah it's not really a terrible thing it's just like you, you but you can hear them yeah 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 and and you know i i think it's one of those things where until you're looking for it you wouldn't necessarily i, I certainly wouldn't have picked it up but i'm like you now that i know some of the 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 lore around this and I'm more aware of it. It's like, oh, yeah, oh, okay. But up until then, I was blissfully ignorant and just reveling in the perfection that is close to the edge. So, you know, I, I just, I think it's amazing, especially when you consider how things are recorded today, when you can, you know, on your computer, you know, spread things out to a gnat's ass and, you know, chop it off here and move it over there. And, you know, I mean, you can be so yeah. exact. And these guys were just, you know, literally cutting tape. It just, it yeah, mind working, working the reels. Yeah, <laughs> marking it with pen. Yep, slicing it, slicing it up. It's crazy stuff. Reminds you of the good old days. That uh, did you do that at Jim Femino? I did a little. I did a little. I I didn't do very much splicing. I did do some like cleaning of tracks that in that fashion, which was yeah. never fun. Yeah, <laughs> but I did. Yeah, I remember the grease the day, pencil. Yes, uh, from the studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the day that I realized I did not want to become a full-time engineer was, I think, I was at Disc Masters. I don't know why we were there, but we were at Disc Masters. At Disc Mas Disc Masters is that what they're called? Yeah, and it's in like um, Limerick, PA, or at least it was. And we were in this production room. And there was some guy, there was some guy editing like a, like a voiceover session. Like someone was basically reading like a script or like a, like, I don't even know if they had audiobooks then, but like, like a book on tape or something. And this poor guy was sitting there with this, you know, this like eighth inch reel of a recording session. And he was just listening to this, this monotone guy talk and like there would be like a little like a little pause or a crackle or he'd say something and be like let me do that again and then he would say the line over and then the poor guy had to go back find the section that he did wrong and then splice the two that the two parts and splice that section out and then put it back together and then listen to make sure that it was seamless and it was just it was it was i watched this guy do it for like 15 minutes and I and I was like I never I never want to do this job ever in my life because it just 
it it sounds brutal. And I was trying to do some of that with you, Joe, on the introduction video that you sent. Yep. Um, there were a couple couple spots where you know there were like pauses or or mm -hmm. or um you 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 know you kind of picked your nose accidentally while you were talking and um you know and I was doing the same thing like I like you said I was spreading it out really thin and I was trying to find the right spot and splice it together and videos is less forgiving but um but yeah I mean Eddie Offord for sure was quite masterful at at that art. Yeah, I, you know, the, it's just, you know, I don't know what I would find more amazing, the fact that they constructed it in that in, in the fashion that they did, or that they would have just, you know, recorded and built it, you know, done it all sort of, you know, at once. Either yeah. way. Well, you know, to, to go on, to just like celebrate Eddie Offred a little bit, Dude has worked on a lot of shit. Like, has he really? Oh my gosh! Ju just in like from 1970 to 1975, it's here we go. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, Tarkas, pictures at an exhibition and trilogy. Um, he did um, taste on the boards and Rory Gallagher. He did Time and a Word, Engineered, Yes Album, Fragile, Close to the Edge, and technically he did Yes Songs and Tales for the Topographic, Relayer. Um, th there's a bunch of people that I, I don't even know who they are. Baker, Gervitz, Army, uh, three albums by then. Uh, Andy Pratt, well, that was 1979. Um, I mean, like, a lot of stuff. I mean, he was just very well sought out in, in that time frame. And incidentally, in 1999, he retired and now doesn't do anything with music, according to uh, Wikipedia. He's, you know what he does? He travels the world on a sailboat. Really? Yes. How do you go from being in a studio in your whole life to being on a sailboat? Well, I think it's very fitting that we discovered this while we're talking about Close to the Edge. Um, because I'm, I've, I have always loved, not always, I shouldn't say, I have not always, but once I discovered Close to the Edge, it has been one of my favorite albums of all time, certainly my, my most favorite Yes album. And I, uh, I didn't really understand Close to the Edge until the Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, and How Tour. Uh, because up till that point, uh, we've talked a little bit about our, our introductions to Yes. I had uh, Vic's mixtape of uh, classic Yes, and the only entry from Close to the Edge was And You and I. So I knew that song, and I loved that song for a very long time, but never really got into the album until I found out that Anderson, Bruford, Wigman, and Howe were going to be performing the song Close to the Edge. So I uh, could they not? To... I mean, What's that? They had to. I mean, people have been waiting years to hear that with Bruford. Right. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so I, I started listening then, and and I after the first show of them, I still didn't get it. I, that's when I, I think I, I got it. Like after watching them perform it, I was like, oh my gosh. And then I started listening to it the second time around. I finally like understood close to the edge, and um. And ever since, it's been uh, it's been one of my favorites. And actually, you know, on those 
you know, when I did work at Jim Femino Studios, um, I was usually leaving there around one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. And I was uh, proudly still living at my parents' house, I guess, at that age. I don't know if you could say proudly. And I would be <laughs> driving back to their driving back to their house at two in the morning in the middle of summer with my windows down and close to the edge blasting. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it, it's it's always been. I mean, and we're, that's like what? That's like in 1990, 90, 91, 92. Um, and it was all the way up until this year that I had ever even stopped to consider what the song actually might be about. And, uh, and so, and this, this little exercise that we've done, you know, for Progressive Palaver has been uh, really eye opening. Um, to find out, like, you know, that what, like, this song was inspired by this book called Siddhartha, and, um, which is a story about a young man's search for enlightenment. And, uh, and I, I went ahead and I binged, um, on book on tape, Siddhartha, actually yesterday when I drove home from my mom's from North Carolina. Um, it's a, it's, it's a fantastic story. I highly recommend uh, you read it or you listen to it. It is absolutely, you know, it's 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 captivating and it's and it's terrific. And um, I can't really say that after um, that I that I found anything that was you know directly related. Like when I think of the lyrics that I can that I know, or when I listen to it, um, I don't see any direct connection. But uh, under when I think about you know man's search for enlightenment. Um, and you listen to the song, it, it starts to come together a little bit more um, in, 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 a, in a terrific way. And I would also add that I, I suspect that this story, Siddhartha, also permeates um, other songs, like a little bit of And You and I, at least, uh, Wondrous Stories and uh, Awakening as well, I think, has, um, you know, has, its, uh, has its roots, perhaps, in this story. Part of the the story of Siddhartha is towards the end of this man's journey. He ends up as a um, he ends up at this river, and he is a ferry ferryman. He actually um, a ferryman that takes him across the river at the beginning of the book. He comes back to him, and he ends up spending his um, the last part of his life as the ferry as a ferryman working there and listening to the river and, and learning and, and really discovering the enlightenment by the river. So I find it, to bring it around to the end here, it's amazing when we talk about this and we're talking about Eddie Offord now spends most of his time uh, sailing in a sailboat. So there, there you go. That is fascinating. I, I, I really didn't know. And last episode we touched on this, and I've honestly spent a lot of time thinking about this since then. But this whole idea, as 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 much as I admire and I enjoy John Anderson, and it never really occurred to me until we talked about it, but his lyrics have never really translated anything to me, and and, and I just I I just find that weird, you know. You think about, and I certainly wouldn't have, you know gotten that whole story from close to the edge again 
as spectacular as Close to the Edge is, and and I'm with you, Paul. I think, you know, I think Close to the Edge is is clearly the most, you know, the the best, the most phenomenal, whatever superlatives you want to uh, apply to it. Yes, album. And, you know, I think it it may very well be one of the best albums ever. Period. Just yeah. I, I there's. I was I was thinking today as I was getting ready for this, you know, there's there's one thing, one thing I can talk about with Close to the Edge as an album that I don't like or doesn't sit well with me. But I just I find it fascinating that I can I can love Yes music so much and I connect with it so much. And I just I couldn't tell you what John's trying to tell me. Which is funny because you know that John is so into it himself, and and he thinks what he's saying is so important. So and, uh, you go ahead. Agreed. Agreed. I I, I I can't help but go back to the the talk show in Nashville, and and John's up there talking about whatever and. I think maybe, you know, he, he has all this stuff in his head. He just doesn't know how to communicate it. And when he sings, it it feels better. Because obviously he understands the idea of melody and whatnot. But, yeah. Just, there's, well, there's... so I, um, you know, it's, it's sort of like we talked, you know, we talked about this. And I think this was in the Eddie Offord interview where John says that, he writes lyrics like colors, like painting. Like he's not necessarily right. concerned about um, about this. Um, so that 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 kind of helps. So I, I I have to. We have to dive into this a little bit. We have to dive into the Stanley Snail uh, reference here, Joe. This is completely please, new to please me. Please do, Paul. Enlighten me. I don't. I can't. I cannot enlighten you because I've I've never heard this before. And the first thing I did was I went to my my lyric sheet of Siberian Katru to look for this for Stanley. Uh, what is it? Stanley Snail. Yeah. Stanley Snail. And what I'm reading is um, gold. Stainless nail. Really? What is it exactly? Well, I don't... So, again, I downloaded this off the internet. So, uh, as lyrics go... And it's always tricky when you're downloading John Anderson lyrics off the internet because anyone could put anything they damn well please (laughs) and it would make just as much sense. But um, a couple of... A couple of different... Uh, versions have so the, the first line of the song is sing bird of prey beauty begins at the foot of you do you believe the manner and then the next line is gold stainless nail torn wow. through the distance as they regard the summit um, I would it would be interesting to take all of John lyrics John, John Anderson's lyrics and find out how many times he uses the word regard or some something 
Now, there is a band that's called Stanley Snail. And so they, I, it, looks like they, it looks like they do a cover of Siberian Katru. And that's probably the one that's on that. So I wonder if, if the, the Stanley Snail was tongue-in-cheek. Because it probably sounds like that. Ever since, ever since I got that album with, with Stanley Snail on there, Stanley Snail is what I hear. But Stanley gotcha. Snail? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you would yeah. hope it would be Stainless Nail. You would hope. Yeah. Mm. So there is there Paul, is good a save. good good save because you know the palaver would have gone down as as the one <laughs> podcast that fell for the Stanley Snail in per perpetuity. You kind of like dug us out of a ditch there. There there is another there is another set of lyrics that that's been apparently um i'm trying to find it right now it's in yours is no disgrace where apparently everyone it sounds like he's writing saying one thing and everyone's got it wrong um but seriously he says something else so it's um there's a line that says arm arm armies scattered the earth is what everybody believes. Um, but that's not what he says. He says something else. I'll have to find that. Anyway, it's you know, case in point, John Anderson's lyrics um, don't make sense. And sometimes we hear words differently and we sing them wrong and then when we find out what the real words are we can't we can't hear it right uh, ever again and i think in john anderson's case it probably his, his style opens it up to um to that happen even more often um and yet somehow he convey he conveys to me he conveys such beauty and and um, pointy with some of the I mean, I don't even know what he's talking about, and yet I feel like I want to. I want to like um, put the lyrics up on a wall and read them yeah. every day. Yeah, you know, and 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 that's what that's what makes it so remarkable. Like I said, I I, I don't know what he's telling me, but I know that it's awesome. You know, <laughs> exactly. hmm. and. And you know, it's now like, the fact kind that we, of like Anthony Hunter's blind. Oh, yeah. oh thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I have, I, yeah, I, I'm on board with you guys. It, when it comes to yes, if someone corners me for a favorite, you know, release, it's going to be close to the edge. It might even be, you know, top ball bands. Uh, but I can't quote you the lyrics. I don't have to. I don't need to. I, I know John Anderson's shtick. And like you said, Paul, yeah, I'm on the verge of uh, posting these uh, lyrics on my desk at work. And I, I don't know what the fuck they mean. I don't know what they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's motivating me. Maybe it'll motivate somebody else. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 pulled, I pulled these up. I, I, I pulled up Siberian Katru. Uh, you know, with your motivation there, and even reading them, I don't entirely know what's going on here. <laughs> but, but you know, um, some of the later albums, I can sing 50% of what's going on there. 
Oh, I mean, even even when I try with all my might to, you know, read these lyrics and internalize them, it just doesn't happen. It's it, it's pure art. You know, it only happens in that soundscape, you know, in those chords. Yeah, yeah I, I almost, you, you know, you guys are talking about getting, you know, the lyrics and, and putting them on your desk, but it's almost like you can't, you can't express it in words. You almost need some sort of a, of a, of a you know, a, a graphic representation in order to get it across. You know, yeah. the yep. words don't do it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And but here's here's the exciting thing for me, Paul. You just debunked the whole Stanley Snail thing, which means <laughs> I have no complaints with close to the edge at all. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Yeah, I mean, you know, so it's two things like, you know, like if we just if you just take a look, I, I think it's the it's the um, the meat, the meter and the rhythm of everything. Like if you think sing bird of prey, beauty begins at the foot of you. Do you believe the manner like there? There is something in there that's really beautiful. And the the you know the the concept of this uh, of vagueness and and metaphors and and it being something different to everybody, you know, bird, bird of prey could be anything. It could be anything to anyone. It could it could have so many different meanings. And 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 it, and as you know, I, I'm torn between thinking it's just the most poetic genius that that has ever been in music or it, it you know he was just one stone dude you know pulling <laughs> images and, and 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 like it's just it but but I, but I love it nonetheless whatever it is and i and i would say that that the you know if this this might be an overload right of imagery and overload of metaphors and and um I don't know. Vagueness isn't the right word, but um, you know, it might be overload. But when I listen to something like "Fly from Here" and and other other songs in the in the future, but I'll just use "Fly from Here" for, as an example because it's it's I've been listening to it more often. There is such a direct translation of lyrics and meaning and story that it. As as good as it is, it it falls short from in that poetic sense because because of the of of such a, a more direct translation and 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 I maybe I may come back to to recant these words because I intend to listen to fly from here much more closely when we get to that album um, than I have now but it but just after the first few passes of it you know it's just it's just kind of and it's not just yes; it's all music. It's it's music overall. Um, w one of the fa the things that I love about um, Duke is that oh, God. Some, Duke. Of, some of the, some of the songs on that, you know, you know, like guide vocal, like it could mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, um, Duchess. 
Um, I can't even think of the track titles now, but you know, but you get, you get my drift. Yeah, cul-de-sac and guy vocal, dude. Holy crap! Cul-de-sac. That's what I was. Thinking. Yeah. 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 That. Um, that's amazing. I can't wait to get there either. Um, we've got so much good stuff to talk about. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I, I think um, I'm glad. Uh, you, and, you know, it's we went off on the lyrics, and we were very deliberately getting close to the edge in Siberian Catru. Um, and you and I does a little bit better job. Just the one-liners, all complete in the sight of seeds of life with you. You know, mm. that's a little bit more tangible. You know, that's like, yeah. oh. Oh, okay. This is a, a couple, and it's 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 productive. It's complete. This is great. Um, he goes off. He gets a little weird, but he repeats that line, and uh, and you and I climb over the seats of the valley. He keeps it simple there, and it's just absolutely beautiful. That's a legitimate chorus. Yeah, yeah. That song is so that is so beautiful, um, and like. You know, the fact that he can write a song that's so beautiful and still use the phrase mutant enemy. Yep, yep, yep. So, yeah, um, there's, there's, just, there's, I mean, I, that song, I mean, we could, we could probably, I mean, you could just go forever just taking the different sections of that song. I, I agree with you, Ken. It's, Sometimes it's a little bit more straightforward, but at the same time, there are just endless uh, supplies of of color and and imagery there that just are quite imaginative. It's it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I I find this this particular um, conversation very interesting. In that, Paul, a couple episodes ago, when we were talking about the Yes album. You had said, for you, yours is no disgrace is the yes song. Yeah. For me, for me it's and you and I. Uh, and, and, you and, and you and I is is literally without compare in the entire catalog. As spectacular as as close to the edge is and, and some of the other songs and everything else. And you and I I just think is is the the perfect expression of everything these guys are doing. And I wouldn't have necessarily thought along these lines, but, but here hearing, you know, you guys talk about this and, and the, the subtle difference in, and you and I, in that there is actually a semi coherent and communicated message while still maintaining that, that sort of colorful jaundice about it. So, so you have the magic, but then you also have this this very simple, powerful, communicated message at the same time, and maybe that's what what really you know puts it all together for me and, and makes that such a standout song from from top to bottom. Mm. Mm. Yeah, um, I wonder what it's like for someone like John Davison to know all of these lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> without having written them. I mean, that is a career, you know, to 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 do all of these. I, I have, have have either of you seen John Davison? Not in person. 
seen a couple YouTube videos, but I haven't seen him in live yet. I'm I'm fairly certain that you know thirty years ago that would have been what nineteen eighty seven ish. Maybe maybe it was a little bit less than that. I don't know. Maybe it was when they got together for ABWH. I think they scraped some some skin off of John and they they started cooking John Davison. Um and and they they brought him up in a stage set <laughs> as if it were the nineteen sixties. And and they 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 recreated John Anderson in modern day. Yeah. Is is what I think happened. Because he's 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 got that sort of uh, well, it's a hippie I, vibe. What's that? Well, he's it, a hippie. It's, it's clearly a hippie vibe. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, but it's just you know, stardust and moonbeams and everything else, and you know it, and that's that's such a departure from his predecessor Benoit David, who, for lack of a better phrase was just freaking cool. You know, Benoit was, he was, he was a, a, he was a modern guy. He was hip. He was, he was in the now. Um, and, and John Davison is not that. They're, they were both very good. I've enjoyed them, them both a lot. Um, but, uh, yeah, John Davison is something. Hmm. Huh. Hmm. Yeah, the, the video that I saw, he seemed very um, unassuming and very, like, almost like a stage prop, um, which I didn't like. Um, but it was it was like a fan video from the top balcony. It wasn't that great. So I'll have to check it out some more. Yeah, it was it was interesting. I, I, I saw him. I don't know if it was the first tour with him, but certainly one of the first tours. And. You know, having seen yes so often throughout the years, and I mean, say what you want to about John. John, John is a front man. You know, John. Yeah. You know, at a concert, John runs the show, and John loves that, and John's very good at that. And it was weird to go to a yes show where the singer literally wasn't allowed to speak, and and Steve and Chris did all of the emceeing, if you will. And the last time I saw them. Um, they let John speak a little bit more, but it was, it, you know, it, it's just, it's a different dynamic without Chris there now. Um, yeah. And, oh, and, oh, mentioning Chris, I mean, Chris had to memorize some of these damn lyrics too. And, uh, and it's remarkable that he was, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> um, a clearer future morning, evening, nights with you. I mean, even a simple song like in You and I, they have to change every single goddamn chorus to be something complicated with two-part right. harmony, and they pull it off. That's Boy, it's, 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 yeah. So, you know, I had, I had made the comment um, the last time that we recorded, you know, that, that this, and, and we've already kind of talked around it, you know, this album is, it's the quintessential yes experience. So you've got, you know, arguably the the greatest lineup, and so fragile had 
you know, its moments of brilliance, but it had its its sort of or just sit down. But it had its its sort of shortcomings, um, whether they you know wherever they came from, and then you have this, which is is it, it's the perfect balance of of you know crafting a song with a little bit of the over the top you know part of it um, indulgence, if you will, and then. And, and granted, it's not completely continuous because Bruford left, but you go on to, to topographic, which is, in, in a lot of ways, you know, you can see the relationship, but but that becomes too indulgent. That's an interesting topic to consider, um, you know, the impact that, that Bill has. But but this album, like I said, it's, it's just, it's such a, a fantastic sort of, balance of everything because literally and you know I, I want to say that there this this was actually mentioned in an interview that I'd seen years and years ago I really need to just take some time and go back and look at these things but when you think about it literally you have you have five five guys who at various times you know can carry the show if you will um, you know, it's it's not it's not a guitar driven band, and it's not a keyboard driven band. You know, Chris has his own thing, and then so you've got you've got these multiple layers of sometimes you know Steve's front and center, and sometimes Chris is driving everything, and then of course you've got the genius that's Rick Wakeman. Then you've got you know the vocals, but it's not just John; it's John and Chris together, and and you know we spent so much time last episode talking about the importance of Bruford on, on all of this. And it, oh, yeah. you, you've, yeah, you've got hit, so hit, many... Hit me up when you're... Yeah, I can... Yeah, I, so I, you've, got, you, you've got all these different textures that you can make. And, you know, again, everyone had their moment to shine on this album, and they did so... They managed to do so in a way that wasn't overpowering. It was impressive, but it wasn't overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose last time, I, I definitely invested myself into the the wonders of the antagonist, Bill Bruford, where he wasn't the aggressor, uh, but he was bringing out the most aggressive performance from Chris and from Steve in a lot of cases, and, and, and Rick for that matter, but leaving enough room for the, the soft voice of John. And, and I think... Really listening to Close to the Edge, there's a close miking on the kit. There, there's a real like proximity to the hi-hats. And, and he's busy, but you get that accuracy. And I think where we lose the yes sound in Tales of Topographic Oceans is that they're getting more into a stadium sound. And Alan White is you know, delivering, I guess, I guess more volume. I think he just hits very hard. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And he delivers that stadium sound. And his hats are open. And he's got a lot more resonance in the cymbals. And mm. I think I miss the kind of clockwork accuracy. Yeah. And, and you know, I. It, it's one of those things where, 
as you sort of get into yes and you, you know, certainly when we did um, and and coming from from where we did musically and the things we were listening to and and you almost had to to learn to appreciate these long songs, right? And, and, you know, Tales from Topographic Oceans was always sitting out there as this sort of, you know, mountain that had to be climbed and it may not be fun, but you've got to do it. Um, and, and, but again, I, I just, I, I just find it fascinating to think about what would have been, but I guess that's mm. the, uh, you know, that's uh, the, yeah, the yeah. next. Tales is not as bad as my listen about a, a month ago. Uh, getting into oh, yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I look forward to the next episode. Uh, Tales, it's a mountain to be climbed. And it's got some plateaus, but there are at least two tracks that I've come to love on there. I'll be uh, interested to hear what those are. I, I'll be interested to hear what those those are, and if they're not tracks one and four, I'll be very surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, you know, and, and yeah. we can we can talk about it. I I I would almost argue that track two is better than track four but that's yes me. yes 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 exactly <laughs> yep you got it uh, okay i'm a one and two well, I, I i i'll go back i'll go back and uh, and enjoy the that try to um uh you know but ken you know everything that you're saying about bill bruford is right on and the thing that that I often wonder, and I don't, you know, I've never written or read anything, you know, any kind of biography about Bruford. I think there's one. Um, is that, you know, I listened, so Ken, you were right on, like, you know, it, it is his choice of instrumentation where, you know, part of the song, he just plays the hi-hats. He's doing all of the work on the hi-hat and he's accenting hi-hat hits where there might be a snare um and it's it's the perfect ingredient for that part of the song and there are parts of the song where chris is you know doing his thing and he's sliding around and he's doing accents and the the snare selections appears random it's it, like i I don't know how to describe it in any other way than jazzy because that's the only way that I that's the only other place where I hear a drummer like completely sounding like he's randomly hitting snare hits but yet he's staying in time even though it seems completely like he un unpreconceived he's just like whacking at the snare whenever he damn well feels like it and and uh, and when it the in the context of the song it is absolutely brilliant and it like you said it, it it is it is the sound of the song and in my mind i'm all i can think of is you know when they were recording this was he sitting there like in in like jazz nirvana like i can you know thinking about how great it is or if he was sitting there like you fucking motherfucker. And he's just like smacking the snare whenever he feels like it because he's so pissed off at the squire. You know? We'll never Maybe know. Maybe we'll never know. But it it, yeah. it really 
it really just and even the very end of the song when it finally goes you know i get up and there are these big these big hits and it's the same rhythm they're playing the whole way but it just sounds terrific and then he just lays it lays like a half of a measure of like a steady beat and it is perfect and then it, it i mean i just can't i can't get over how the last month and a half of listening to yes has completely turned the tables for me on on bill bruford on sure. on i was i even sent i it was even today at work i was talking to somebody that i know who's a drummer who of course is younger than i am because everybody that i work with is younger than i am I and feeling. yeah and i you know i was talking to him and i he i forget what he oh i he asked me about you know something about um my my weekend and driving home from north carolina and i told him that i listened to siddhartha and he was like oh, i've never heard of that and i said well have you ever heard of close to the edge by yes and he looked at me with a you know sort of a fuzzy fuzzy look so later you know i later at the end of the day i sent him a leak a link to close to the edge to listen to it and i told him i said you know i said bill bruford is the drummer on this and i said he was quite quite in demand in the 70s as in the progressive rock scene and i said he's more of a jazz style and he was incredibly influential and i would have never ever written those written those words to anybody until this last go around as much as i could have appreciated him before i never would have would have had that kind of understanding of his contribution so so here's what i find interesting um and I can't wait to do this. I wish I had had enough forethought to do it before tonight, but we can always, you know, catch up with it next time. I have one, maybe two live albums from ABWH. I can't wait to listen to Close to the Edge, paying particular attention to Bill Bruford, because, again, my recollection of ABWH is that Bill Bruford in the early 1990s was not the Bill Bruford of the early 1970s, not even close. And I'm curious to see now in light of, like you said, Paul, sort of our, our current perspective on this, how that really translates. I, I'm, I'm fascinated. I can't wait. Mm, yeah. Um, um, yeah. Well, go ahead, Ken. Um, I don't think we mentioned Rick in this particular go round, uh, but hats off to Rick. Fourteen minutes into Close to the Edge, he just has one of those amazing synth moments where they give him uh, a couple of minutes, I think, just to build up, and and he takes them into that crazy like twelve eight. Ch -ch 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 where Bruford is is just owning the kit, um, but it, it's 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 those Bruford dramatic moments where he sets the stage for us, and and you know they wanted somebody to come in and play synth. God damn! By close to the edge, Wakeman fucking mastered it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And 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 I was going to get there, Ken. Um, certainly. Because you can't, uh, you can't talk about close to the edge without talking about Rick. Because, like you said, it's that whole, and 
you know, I can never quite figure out if it's, um, I'm assuming it's, it's, I get up, I get down section where, where Rick does his thing. Is that the first time that we get Wakeman playing the, the pipe organ? I think oh, probably. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And so, you know, I, that's like one of those things where it comes in and, and you're just like, well, that's kind of different. Didn't expect that. That's kind of cool. And, and then he goes into this, you know, as you said, you know, Ken, this, he's, he's got a pretty sizable just since solo at that point that is, you know, it's, it's very technical, but it's very tasteful at the same time. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and that's one of the things that I, I, I personally think of Rick Wakeman sort of in the way that I think of Eddie Van Halen in that he's, he's technically proficient in a way that is, you know, truly exceptional. But he's also very happy to play what he needs to play for the sake of having a song come together. Now, Eddie yes, does it a lot, yes, more, yes. a lot more, you know, basic and straightforward. But, but, but Rick is more than happy to, you know, and, and to sort of dial it back. And some of the things that Rick does are in some ways almost subtle. Like, you have to really pay attention to understand that that Rick's really going to town back there, but he kind of does it in the back. So it doesn't overwhelm you. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, I mean, most prog, prog rock bands of the era, we're going to take a pipe organ and we're going to fill this space and we're going to make the hairs in the back of your neck stand up. And, and, and then we're going to come back in with a band, but that's not Rick. Like, right. Like it's not, it's not just the pipe organ. He's like, I'm going to take you. To this amazing point and then i'm gonna kind of play a little joke on you and take you to somewhere new before i let you go yeah and, and that's that's the wonder of of the pipe organ melding with the synth in close to the edge um, well and, and yeah. you know for for me it was it was kind of special um just because my dad was an organist and, and you know i always grew up when my dad would have a gig he would have to go and practice. So, you know, when I was younger and I would spend weekends with him, if he had a gig that weekend, I would Joe, spend... Joe, you're getting all Stephen Hawking on us right now, dude. What? <laughs> the joys of, of doing this uh, remotely, it's it's wonderful. You guys have Skype me meetings at work? Do this shit all the time. <laughs> but Ken uh, is frozen in time. Maybe I must not have any internet connection anymore. What's going on? Maybe it's you. So anyway, on, on weekends when my dad had a gig, I would spend a decent chunk of my Saturday in some random church somewhere, you know, listening to my dad do his thing. And, you know, I was I was always impressed as, as a young kid because, I mean, on, on a pipe organ, there's a lot of crap going on. And one of the things that I remember vividly about my dad was, my father loved his foot pedals and his feet were going all over the place down there and he's popping, you know, pulls and everything else. And, and it was just, you know, so I always had this sort of, you know, um, 
innate appreciation for it. And so then to hear, you know, someone like Rick Wakeman bring that into, you know, this sort of, of you know, milieu, it's like, oh, this is cool. And then, like you said, Ken, he goes, he goes off and, and, and he takes you to other places at the same time. And it was just, wow, God, it's, it's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the Spotify has multiple um, 1972 shows. And Rick really does a great job in his solos on that tour. Uh, kind of the same thing. It's the middle of Close to the Edge. He makes he makes space, and then he just just excites everybody. Part of what I've been doing to prepare for this, and again, it goes back to the conversation we had last time, is I, I've spent some interesting time listening to Trevor Rabin, yes, playing these songs, and. I've softened my opinion somewhat, but it's still fascinating to listen to the way that particular lineup, which John and Chris are the only things that they have in common, go through these types of songs. And, and you know, we we talked previously about the uh, the 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 physical capability differences between Tony Kay and Rick Wakeman. I mean, Tony may be the nicest guy in the world, but Tony Kay physically can't play the way that Rick can. And so one of the things that, one of the ways that manifested itself in, in that particular version of Yes, and Paul, you may have seen some people who could pull this off in, I don't know if Oliver could, I don't know if Igor could, but certainly Tony K couldn't. I don't think Jeff Downs can. And so... Oh, Downs does a pretty freaking good job, though. Downs is okay, but but specifically, I'm thinking about some of the keyboard parts in And You and I, and it was on the, the, the... the 90125 version of Yes, when apparently, and maybe they did this before, you guys can tell me if, if you've seen this before, but this seems to be the point when in those sections of And You and I, Chris whipped out his harmonica because they didn't have anyone who could do what Rick could do. And it was, you know, in that particular section, there wasn't any other way to sort of mask the fact that Rick Wakeman wasn't there. So I, I just, I find that fascinating. Mm-hmm. How did, how did Chris do with the harmonica? You know, it's, it's, it's a different sort of thing, <laughs> obviously. Um, yeah. But, you know, and it's one of those things where I, I had seen yes perform a bunch of times. I'd seen, you know, Chris do that and it never really occurred to me why he was doing it. I knew there was no harmonica in your recorded yes past. And I just figured it was Chris wanting to, you know, do something fun and goofy because that's what Chris did. But I, I think it was originally driven by a need 
to sort of get through some of these parts. I don't know. That's just my, my two cents. Well, uh, my recollection is that Igor had it down with no problem whatsoever. Um, I, I don't recall seeing Igor, but but my my understanding of Igor was that he he was as close to you know being a Rick Wakeman as you could. Sorry, I didn't mean to step over you there. Yeah, no, it's it's right on, and and I think you, you know there was a lot of things during that time that that were good and maybe maybe not good about the band but you know that as they went through the open your eyes into the ladder and the tour which you know was sensational in my opinion and and you know oddly in those in those two tours the, the things that i thought made it so phenomenal was igor and billy sherwood because um you know, when they were doing the Trevor Rabin songs, Billy Sherwood was was very true to the Trevor Rabin stuff, you know, and he was playing it. I, I always thought of it like he was playing it like a fan, like he those were the songs that that's how he, he was. They were supposed to be played and he played them. And I felt Igor did the same thing. So there wasn't this. Oh, we need to pull the harmonica out because, you know whether I can or can, or I just don't want to, I didn't learn that part or, you know, Trevor Rabin's not like, I'm just going to sort of figure out, you know, I'm going to half-ass my way through and you and I, um, or, you know, any, anything else. Um, and Steve Howe didn't have to play power chords. Um, it was, it was fantastic. And, and it was the perfect segue. Like after the latter, it was like, well, what else can they do? I know, let's play our longest tracks. Let's play six of them, and that will be the whole show. And they did the Masterworks, and Igor, Igor crushed that tour. He, he crushed it. Um, so he, he definitely he had the goods. He even, he even played during, the, during Roundabout, during the chorus, when you have the on the keyboards, he would play that and while he was playing that, he would hit smack a cowbell, cowbell with his other hand while he's playing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, I, 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 that was sort of the period where I wasn't going to concerts at all, and I don't know if I didn't know they were here, if they weren't here, or whatever the case may be. I missed both of those tours. I missed the latter, and I missed the Masterworks tour. And it it pains me to this day that I didn't get a chance to see those. Yeah, there is a delicious, and, delicious. And mostly because I would have liked to have seen Igor. Um, yeah. yeah, there's a great video called House of Yes, which I is have the latter. Oh yeah, so that's a great video. Master yeah. after I saw the Masterworks tour, um, which they did close to the edge, and they did track four from Tales of the Topographic Oceans, among others. Um, after the, so they did those two songs, and they did um, Gates of Delirium. And then I think they did, like, you know, Heart of the Sunrise, um, Yours is No Disgrace, Starship Trooper. 
Um, and I think they did roundabout. That may have been all they did. Uh, they may have done um, your move. Uh, the I can't remember if they did Awaken during that, that show or not. Um, I would imagine they would have. After I saw that, that, that tour, I really didn't think I ever needed to see Yes again. Um, after seeing them so many times and then seeing that lineup play um, play those those masterworks so you know so well yeah I didn't think I needed to see them again and I didn't for a, an extremely long time so mm, mm, mm. Um, what, what hits me when you talk about you just mentioned the gates of delirium uh, and we, we we've touched on tales and it's coming up in the next episode Um. Uh, and, and going back to like how Steve Howe came in and introduced his guitar work and his country influences and whatnot, you know, you would think that all of these songs are straight up progressive rock in the mode of, um, you know, kind of like the Led Zeppelins and the Emerson Lakes and, and Palmers. What makes yes actually different is this bizarre, like, 1940s country influence on Steve Howe, and it gets into, like, a, a 1950s shuffle sometimes, which gets into the 1970s boogaloo kind of funky stuff that they do. So e even in their darkest, most complex, bizarre prog rock songs, like Gates of Delirium, you're getting into this, like, little boogie-woogie thing. And it's infectious. And, 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 and I think I think it sometimes it just pulls them out of a you know they, they do get stuck in the trenches of hard rock they, they do get kind of bogged down in the in the prog odd times it becomes very aggressive and very macho and then just when you think they have nowhere to go Steve Howe is like doing a little country lick like you know yeah it's it's like a little bit of a comic relief right in the middle of the whole show well it's you know it's it's funny you should say that because i one of the things i remember from it was i get it was a video they put together for the union tour where they had interviews with all of them and and bruford addresses this very thing it, you know i think he says they were i think he described it as they were cowboy crazy and, right you know, Right. It didn't make any sense, but you'd have these these sort of country legs show up that when you're just like, well, what the heck's that all about? So, so yeah, you're spot on, Ken. Absolutely. It, there's not a lot of it in Close to the Edge because Close, Close to the Edge pretty much carries the prog meme straight through. Yeah. Uh, uh, really in Siberian Catru, that, that's when the, the country stuff pops out. Yes, and and that's one of the ones that that Bruford called out explicitly in that okay. interview. Well, yeah, and then and then obviously you know even later on when Steve starts to bring in the pedal steel and stuff, you know you get even more of that. So, yeah, Steve Howe is is such an interesting interesting guy, and we haven't even talked about Steve, you know, really much at all in in, in this. Well, um, well, I, I think I dragged him under the bus in the last episode, based on. <laughs> I don't. I don't recall you. Well, dragging well he him we, he started off with a lot of lush instruments and a lot of diversity, 
but it seems like after playing live for years, he just kind of devolved into one electric guitar sound that was a little janky, not a lot of bass, and just kind of right. Did, Paul, didn't we touch on this? Yeah, he gets he's he gets noisy, and there's some noisiness going on, I think, in um in close to the edge and Siberian true. I I um you know, but he you know in close to the edge he really focuses on um in the song close to the edge he's got that electronic sitar um that he's doing a lot of work with which um in some cases he's just strumming chords which you know it just gives a different kind of strange tone um is that where but, the tone comes from yeah yeah it's an electronic okay. sitar and and then he, you know there's yeah, there's some cool parts in there, but yeah, like Joe, you mentioned, he he has that uh, that pedal steel, um, uh, you know that that he adds in, which which is I think it's it's really cool because he had there's so much pedal steel in in and you and I, and yet it never comes across as hokey or you know like toe tapping country. Um, right. You know, I like I, I remember Bill Bruford talking about you know Cowboy Crazy, Cowboy Crazy. Um, you know, talking about yours is no disgrace with the rhythm rhythm parts, but really also some of the some of the stuff that they did on like No Opportunity Necessary, um, the Richie. I think that's the Richie Havens tune that they did. I think so, where yeah. uh, it was like do 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 which like you know that actually predates uh you know Steve Howe but I think that yeah. um that's that was the thing that I thought was so cool about him is that he brings in all of these different influences without and and they're truly influences right it's the instrument and the and the sort of uh way that he plays it and then to your point Ken every now and then you get one of those kind of licks in there that it's, it, it, you know it, it it adds that flavor to the song and um you know it's it's without actually like oh this sounds like a country song it never really it never really sounds like that it just has that nice influence to it and and um you know the like, one of the coolest things in the song awaken is at the very very end like literally in the last like i don't know 15 seconds um, everything is fading off in this beautiful ethereal. We've just had this amazing experience where we reawaken our beings to creativity, and and it's really almost like a rebirth of yes, you know, in that song. And um, right at the very end, he he plays this little country lick <laughs> and just ends, and he ends with a you know, with it's like it's like the perfect yes ending. He plays this little country lick. And ends with a chord with a third in the bass, which is how he ended um, uh, roundabout. And, and it's just like it's just like an incredible moment, and um, and and I love it. And then and then of course they they went on to you know basically just you know I don't know what happened to the mentor motto, but um, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I'll, I'll defend Tormato more than I'll slam it, but they definitely took a turn in the wrong direction after. I, after I cannot wait. Oh. Nonetheless, none, nonetheless, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, Ken, from the standpoint of 
you know, you get the feeling in the Yes album and Fragile, you know, Steve Howe, you know, had five or six instruments on each guitar. And maybe a, maybe a couple of years of touring, he decided, well, maybe I should just stick to one or two instruments a song here to uh, give myself a break because it, it seemed like it was either electric guitar and pedal steel or acoustic guitar and pedal steel or electric guitar and electric sitar. But um, interesting stuff. And one la you know, one thing I'd add to the, I was having trouble when we were talking about Rick Wakeman's amazing uh, keyboard antics coming out of the I get up, I get down section of Close to the Edge. And I can tell you that I know I have, you know, air played the keyboard on my steering wheel uh, <laughs> during all those parts at some point in time. But I have to confess, most of the time, I'm just jamming out to the bass on that on that part, because Chris Squire is is mm. just destroying the bottom end on that, and I mean that in a good way. Like it is, it's just killer. It's just do 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 do. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. That's that's <laughs> why we have our Chris. That's he's the secret sauce. He is the secret sauce. It's it's such a shame that, um, like I said, without them, without him, you know, that version of yes is not quite what it used to be. And and again, I'll go back to surprisingly, you know, the reason why ARW is as good as it is is because of of the bass player and the drummer. It's you know if if. If Chris Choir is the secret sauce, and which is it? I forget which one is the bass player in ARW, Paul. I don't know if you remember, but whoever he is, he's like, you know, the the super duper close approximation recipe that you can find on the internet. Mm. Mm. Paul's getting it. He's accessing. Yeah, I'd love to say that it's just whatever, but he's too good to let his name go on on say Lee Pomeroy. Lee, I was going to say Pomeroy, and what's the drummer's name? Molina. Yeah, you see now. Um, now I'm actually going to have to click on the link. Um, uh, yeah, uh, Molina. Yep, Lou Molino. Yep, from Philadelphia, PA. Really? Yeah. How do I not know this guy? That's a really good question. How do we not know this guy? <laughs> oh, that's it's quite likelihood he's twenty years younger than us. That could be start for starters. <laughs> and he may have been born in Philadelphia, but my guess is because Trevor met him out in L.A. Right? He's the guy who worked with Trevor, I think. Yeah. Oh, okay, that would make more sense. Yeah. Oh my god, we should do a special episode on Hired Gun. That was a hoot and a half. Oh, gosh. That oh, was... okay. All right, give, give, give me a chance to see it, and then we'll do the episode. <laughs> I think, I think you, could, you, could, you could sum up the whole episode, the whole, the, like, there are so many great things about that, but my biggest takeaway, Billy Joel is a dick. Ah, we got, we got, didn't we get John 
Uh, John, you know, John Mellencamp is a dick too. Dick. Yep, yep, they're both dicks. That uh, yeah, but came Billy out. Joel is a douchebag, dude. My buddy Mike said if I he wrote in an email, he said if if I ever meet Billy Joel, I'm gonna kick him in the balls. <laughs> 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 um, cool. So, so is is there is there anything else to cover on Close to the Edge other than the fact that it's just it's spectacular from top to bottom? I, I I think one of the most peculiar peculiar things, and check me on this. Um, one of the things that is peculiar, I think, about Close to the Edge, the song, is that it really doesn't follow some of the yes um practices that we've seen in in the yes album fragile and then beyond where you get a theme and the theme transitions from from one instrument to the other and now the next thing you know the bass is playing the melody and then the next thing you know uh the, the keyboards are playing the melody from a melodic standpoint um there is some some futzing around with the melody, they take it into the minor place and they, you know, they bring it back to the major, you know, but for the most part, the guitar is the only one playing the main melody in close to the edge. Rick Wakeman plays an arpeggiated, um, uh, piece around it, but never really plays the actual, um, melody, which I just thought was interesting. And then, I actually think from a song structure perspective, Relayer is a little bit more sound in the way that, you know, the, the, in, the introduction part is a, is a, uh, almost like an overture. But I think that's probably what makes Close to the Edge so incredible is that the beginning of it is just like this chaotic sort of everyone, you know, it seems like everyone is doing their own thing. Um, mm-hmm. And and then they just somehow kind of all bring it together, and 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 go into it. So uh, that, uh, that that was the only thing I, I don't think I, I said that I wanted to to mention. And I don't know if you guys have any thoughts about that at all. I'm I'm certainly not in a position to discuss that intelligently, um, other than the fact that yeah, I mean I think you're right that there is sort of a I would describe it as a linearity of to close to the edge, you know, it just kind of, it starts here and it goes over there. Yeah. Um, as opposed to, you know, coming back. Now, is that, is that purposeful? Is that them, you know, learning how to write long form songs? I mean, I know they've been sort of working to it, but certainly they had never gotten to what, 18 minutes or whatever wonderful length close to the edges. Um, yeah, I don't know. And maybe it was, yeah, it, it's it's so difficult, I think, to to try and suppose, you know, how how this came about. Um, even though we've we've tried to do exactly that throughout this entire podcast, um, but I, I think you know, for me, I, I I I have no reasonable explanation as to how it, how this particular thing came about, and and why. Why that one should be different, maybe from some of the other things that they, you know, that that carry through. I'm just going to throw this out there. Uh, October first, uh, um, 
Uh, yes, featuring ARW is at um, Verizon Hall at the Kimmel Center in Philadelphia. And if you don't like that, you can go to Trenton, Reading, Newark, even Boston. You know, it's great that you're bringing this up, Ken, because I, I, I'm glad because I almost forgot and I wanted to I wanted to mention this as well. So um, it appears that we've already hatched a plan where uh, Joe and I will be attending the Friday and Saturday night show. Um, the one in Reading and the one in Trenton, a back to back, oh. if you will. Um, I cannot. I cannot go to the Sunday, uh, October first, because I'm. I have a gig. Um, but uh, I was gonna. I wanted to tell you because I think you should come to both of those shows with us as well, so that we can do a live progressive palaver <laughs> <laughs> on the road. On the road uh, with yes, uh, and and go and go for two days. Absolutely. Yes. You should do that. If if the fans would only leave us alone, we'd get some work done. <laughs> <laughs> so, so ponder that. And then, Ken, to also ponder, uh, I want to say there's a Thursday in September where, um, yes, you know, the regular, the yes official um, is playing at the Tower Theater. As part yeah. of a, a yesival, or I think they call it, there's like the ELP, um, not ELP. Yeah, I think it is the ELP um, tribute, um, as well as uh, another band. So um, I don't think Joe can fly in for that, but uh, if you're you're up for that. Ken, I think we should meet up in um, we should we should meet up in um, Upper Darby for that. Yeah, that's an easy one. We can definitely hit Upper Darby. So, what are they playing? I'm sorry, there's my thought, Ken. It's August eighth. Oh, okay. Whoa, and Todd Todd Rundgren's gonna be there. Yes, Todd Rundgren as well. Yeah. Oh, Carl uh, Pong, Legacy. I mean, Todd Rundgren's local, so whenever he's at the Tower, he pulls a lot of people. He's got his entire fan bases here, and they're, they're as old as he is, but they're dedicated. So well, that's, uh, that's, that's August 8th, October 8th. August 8th. What's that, Joe? Sorry. I was going to say that's August 8th, not September. Yes, August 8th. That's coming up quick. Okay. Barry Manilow is also playing at the Wells Fargo Center on September 15th. As And, and if that doesn't uh, tickle your, your biscuit, um, Dada will be playing at uh, uh, World Cafe Live in Philly on the same night. Do whatever you need to do. Go see Dada. So here's Go the problem. Uh, he's They're competing with Barry fucking Manilow, Joe. This, might, this will be the last time I ever get to see Barry Manilow. Paul, you know I love Barry Manilow. You know I do. But Barry Manilow's what? 150 years old? Hmm. Right, I'm going to say he's like 70. <laughs> he's like 150 years old. I think I he's, he's probably younger than Steve Howe. 
Uh, Dada is, it's not even a question. You have to go see Dada. Do they you still play to. Dim? All I care about is Dim. Yes. Yes, okay. they do. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I've already set the wheels in motion with my uh, sisters to go see Barry Manilow. I don't know if uh, I don't know if I can work Dim into there. Nonetheless, before that, August eighth. So Ken, check your calendar. I'll be in touch. We'll Sounds figure good. it out. Okay. I'm 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 looking at this, and, and they're not coming to Texas. <laughs> as shocking as that sounds. Oh wait, they're coming to they're, Houston, Texas. They're in, yeah, they're in Sugarland. Yeah, that's, that's in not. Houston. Yeah, that's not terribly five, far. Five hours, Paul. Five hours. We've driven further for our concert. <laughs> well, that's true. But uh, yeah, how can they only go to Sugarland? How can they go seriously? They're playing Upper Darby. They're playing Holmdel. They're playing Hershey. But when they get to Texas, all they can squeeze in is Sugarland. Yeah. That's crazy. That's crazy. They are at uh, Oklahoma City the day before. That would almost be easier to get to, but there you go. Very very frustrating. I wonder what they're playing at this Yestival. Uh, supposedly. Oh, here we go. For this the Yestival, Yes will play. Oh, that's right. They're going to play one track from each studio album from 1969. The, from Yes, 1969, to Drama, 1980. Chronologically, with a few surprises thrown in. So, Ken, maybe you'll get your wish, and they'll play track two from Tales of the Topographic Oceans. Oh, man. They're going to have to play on you and I. I mean, they might play Close to the Edge, but I suspect they're going to play you and I. Um, I would be amazed if they played anything from Tales. Despite what it says, I think they're going to skip it. Well, they've already, done, they've already done a tour where they've played the first and the fourth track. From Tales, and, really, and part of, and part of the third. Really, but, you know, the last couple minutes of the third is really all that's worthwhile. They should have just made that like a five-minute song. Sorry, that was supposed to be saved for the next episode. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Gates of Delirium should have been a five-minute song. They were just jackasses for a few years there. Oh wow. boy, they might play. They might yeah, play Gates of Delirium. Seventy-eight, but that's a whole different story. Jesus, they would. I mean, they. I mean, they couldn't play Sound Chaser. That other one. Those songs are just so lame. They have to play Gates of Delirium. <laughs> oh, right. oh, 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 oh! Sound Chaser. What are you chasing? A wheelbarrow of scrap metal? Because that's what a fucking recording sounds like. You have. <laughs> That's our teaser for our uh, our relayer episode. <laughs> you have oh, my I permission. It, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> you you go chase that sound. You you, you do that. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I I did know that. All right. 
So, so Ken, I'll talk to you about August and clear your calendar for the weekend of uh, of us, that weekend in September. The last weekend in September. The Friday, the Saturday, but not the Sunday. Sounds good. Yeah, and if you guys decide to not go on Sunday, uh, you can come see me play. Sounds good. Oh, damn, you're going to make me make that choice? I guess I'll have to go see you play then. Nah, I... <laughs> Um, love it. Yeah, actually, I could, I could do that. I could stay Sunday night. I could probably catch like a stupid early flight on Monday, and with the uh, pick up an hour, I could probably still work a full day. Yeah. Okay. Um. Hey, uh, two hours on close to the edge. Almost. Yeah. I mean, I hope you edit this down to like. 33 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're good. Cool. We're good. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Progressive Palaver. We hope you have enjoyed the conversation. As always, we enjoy sharing it with you. And we very much welcome and look forward to your input, your feedback, your comments, your questions, whatever it is you may have. Um, Please feel free to tweet us at ProgPala. Or you can reach out to us via Facebook or Instagram. Um, we are there at Progressive Palaver. We also have a YouTube channel, also Progressive Palaver. And we do, of course, have a, an email account, progpala at gmail.com. We'd uh, very much look forward to hearing from you. Um, Progressive Palaver is, as always, available on both iTunes and Google Play. We are hosted on SoundCloud, and I believe you can find us on any number of other sites that allow you to find the podcast that you like to listen to. We um, are very excited and look forward to continuing the discussion of the early part of the Yes catalog as next week we move on to Tales from Topographic Oceans. Mm -hmm.